Hello and welcome back to the movies, a pretty self-explanatory podcast. Uh, today I'm going to be finally talking about the newest installment in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, simply titled Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed by David Blue Garcia, starring Elsie Fisher, Sarah Yarkin, Jacob Lattimore. Let me go to IMDb so I don't forget anybody. Uh, Mark Burnham as the aforementioned Leatherface, the villain. You've got Mo Dunfer, Owen Foer, Nell Hudson, uh, Alice Craig, Craig, Cridge, and a whole list of folks, including John Larroquette, because fuck yeah, John Larroquette being in a movie. But uh, this one sees the whole Halloween remake vibe. It's uh, getting rid of all the installments that happened after the first one, starting fresh. It's 50 years after the original movie, and these kids, uh, these 20-somethings, come into a small Texas town with the kind of hope of leading this uh, new wave of young entrepreneurs. You know, they're used to living in Austin, where keeping Austin weird and thriving new business and young weird energy is already so hip that they're priced out of it so they'd rather go to like a smaller town this town that you take one look at it and it's just been dying for 30 years you know there's dust upon dust upon dust that's like baked into the paint at this point so they realize that if they all pull their money to restoring this town that they can basically live their entrepreneurial dreams for a fraction of the cost that it would in a bigger, hipper city. So 20-somethings led by Lattimore and Yarkin uh, as, uh, what's his name? Again, the Imdaba. God bless you, Imdaba. Also, it is 7 in the morning, and I am going to work, and I'm tired as hell. Uh, Dante and Melody. So Jacob Lattimore, Dante, Sarah Yark, and Melody, they're opening a restaurant together, and they kind of were the ones that spearheaded this thing. They're going to the town to visit it, kind of get it ready for the auction because they're going to just sell all the buildings in the town to these new folks. They show up, uh, accompanied by Dante's girlfriend, Ruth, Nell Hudson, and Melody's sister, Lila, played by Elsie Fisher. They show up, and already it's a culture shock. It's that Dante and crew roll in in like an autopilotable electric vehicle in a town where, you know, people pride themselves on how big their lift kits are and drive crazy fucking trucks. You know, there's at most five locals that live in this movie. Like, there's five motherfuckers, and two of them are just cops that are outside the town proper. Like, at most, I think you see three people that live still in this town. That's how fucking deserted and dead it is. They show in, you know, this is somebody that's got to make a comment about, you know, someone carrying a gun because, oh, like, wearing a gun gives you small dick energy. It's that kind of commentary from these characters that are just diametric opposites. And I feel like some people are complaining that these elements are even in the movie, the kind of backlash from the people that live here about what uh, 
what their ways of life are, but if I'm being honest, it's how fucking Texas is, man. Like, for example, I'm going to be driving on the road, uh, this road, Highway 380, or 380 for short. In an hour and a half, you can go from Ponder and Decatur to Denton to Prosper to Frisco. And you can kind of see the timeline of, I guess the better word would be timeline of gentrification going on. Because Ponder and Decatur, super, Ponder especially, rural town, you know, you got horses everywhere, you got a church sponsoring a rodeo, you've got one gas station, you've got this amazing Jamaican restaurant that all the locals love, and you've got next to that this building that somebody will tell you that the original Bonnie and Clyde robbed the bank of, and to be honest, unless you do the Google research, you're kind of thinking the locals fucking with you. But you got people with kind hearts over there, and it's just farmland. I mean, that's what it is. And then you move into Denton, which also has small-town energy, but it's fueled by the college. So that's growing rapidly. You can actually see in real time the, the city basically swallowing other areas around it, like the more rural areas of Crum and Sanger and Pilot Point, and they're encroaching upon those borders and then you move further to the east, you've got something like Prosper, which used to be farmland, dead, like three years ago. But now you've got $500,000 houses, and you've got the business and schools to support that new influx of people. And then you've got Frisco, which started as a suburb and now is just basically the city. I mean, we've got the Cowboys practicing here. Dallas Cowboys are in the backyard. Like, you can see their giant memorial to all things football in Jerry Jones land over here. And this is all within an hour and a half of each other. And you've got people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. You've got di- people from different political views, from classes. And that culture shock and that clash, that consistent banging of you know ideas and mindsets, they're constant. I mean, that's what fucking Texas is. You know, it's one of those states that threatens to turn purple because of all the people that are moving here from places like California and you've got these younger folks and the rise of somebody like Beto O'Rourke. This is the kind of environment that this movie, I think, is seeped in. And something, I hate to keep saying this about movies and I feel like I am, that I feel like this movie needs to be maybe a limited series, a miniseries, like three, four episodes because there is stuff to be chewed on here and to be tackled. You know, these people come into town and this last lady that's living kind of like in this, what used to be like a downtown area is uh, basically Leatherface's mom. She's there, used to run an orphanage. Leatherface, an older gentleman, I, I think he's probably in his 60s at this point, 60s, 70s. He's still there with her and the you know Dante and Melody and her have a disagreement because she was supposed to be gone like they're about to sell these buildings to other people but no she's still there that's her house that's the place she's raised her kid and a bunch of other people's kids and there's a clash there and of course shit goes south and because of shit going super south that's when Leatherface is kind of forced in this whole, I gotta defend my homeland, I gotta defend my way of life, essentially. He's forced to kick in 
with you know his unhinged way of doing things and that's where you get the slasher from and what I'm saying about limited series is that this movie is an hour and 21 minutes and it's dealing with these topics and I think has a at least a marginal understanding of what the culture is like now that it can actually start to you know play around with it but it's so beholden to not just the slasher genre but in more specifically the legacy sequel the new crop of horror movies that is just you know let's do the horror movie again but in 2022 with different 2022 vibes and it's so beholden to kind of the rules of that a la you know the new scream and for some people like halloween kills i Again, I love Halloween Kills, but it's one of those movies where you look at the ending and you're just like, oh, yeah, there's definitely the legacy kicking back in. Like, we need to have a Laurie Strode, Michael Myers showdown at the end of the day because that's what y'all came to see. But in this movie, they bring back the original final girl from the first movie, Sally Hardesty. And, you know, it just feels like they threw that plot thread in. And... A lot of this movie feels like the plot threads are kind of just chunked in there and never really given a chance to marinate and explore and kind of play around with each other because there's just no time. You've got to have Leatherface rack up a body count. And while I think some of the kills are pretty stellar, especially the first one, which is, you know, gruesome in a way that like a lost Mortal Kombat fatality is, uh, a lot of this doesn't quite hit as hard as it needs to i think some of the gore sequences there's a sequence on a party bus that could have been kick-ass i think if there were less people on it because a lot of that shot is just people banging on the windows of the party bus as you see blood splurting behind them and it just doesn't really have the same impact as something like a one-on-one fight does you know there's more tension there the once you see Leatherface get them, it's like, oh shit, they got them. It's like watching the Jaws shark nab somebody, you know? And in this one is just more of a monster movie approach, and it doesn't really hit the same. I don't know if it's that it doesn't hit the same, I just don't feel as much for the people that get killed just because there's way too many of them. And a lot of these people I just don't have an attachment to because the movie doesn't have time to give you an attachment to them. Uh, Elsie Fisher's character, Lila, is dealing with this sort of like domineering older sister. When it's weird because she only looks, she look, they look the same age, but the way her sister Melody is playing, uh, is talking to her is more like she's her new mom essentially. But she's deal, she's dealing with the ramifications of gun violence, and. In a way, I was thinking, huh, what is it like to be a victim in a slasher movie where you've already been part of a, a massacre? You know, it's kind of the commentary that you had in that line in the original 2018 Halloween. I can't believe I'm saying that, the original 2018. Never mind. But uh, in 2018 Halloween, they're talking about like, wait, you know, five teenagers died on a weekend and people are crazy about it for 40 years? Like... Who cares? That statement of 
this is how the world is now. You get a shooting a day. It feels like a shooting a day. People just die all the time. And people, you know, millennials and Gen Z are kind of numb to this tragedy that 40 years ago would just completely devastate a town. Because there's, the volume of it is too much to keep up. And in this case, there is a particular way that they're approaching it. She is the one who survived. You know, we see blood and bodies on the floor and flashbacks. And she's just got this paralysis, this feeling of not only survivor's guilt, but... You know, I didn't. She's like, I didn't do anything special to make it out. And now I feel like I have to do something with my life. Like I have to be somebody to order to justify me living. Because I was just another face in the crowd that didn't catch a bullet, pretty much. My friend, she says, my friends were the special ones. And that's such a disturbed and sad and lonely feeling that the movie only marginally kind of hints at. You know, that scene where she's talking about the story with this guy, this handyman who's helping restore the town, uh, played by Mo Dunford. I think his name is Richter in the film. He is, you know, blue-collar, working-class, bleeds-red Texan. You know, the guy with the gun on his pocket and the big old diesel-burning truck. But... When he's talking to Lila about this, you know, that sort of, like, weight of what it's like to survive something tragic like a shooting or, I guess in this case, a massacre from a dude with a chainsaw, it's it's there. And it feels, le- it definitely feels like an attempt to try to capture the magic of the Laurie Strode PTSD story and really the impact and weight of that. But, again, Halloween is two hours long. And the craziness doesn't really come into the movie until later. Whereas this one, it feels like maybe 30, 40 minutes in, we're already seeing people dying. We're already seeing Leatherface make a mask out of somebody's face. And it's just ready to go. And, God, I don't know if this movie was just edited to shit... I know it went through a couple changes of distributor and finally Netflix picked it up and I think they might have re-edited it all to hell. You can kind of tell in some of these shots and the way they're placed together. But yeah, it's just, I wanted more. I wanted something that was kind of like Cooper's movie that was more patient, that was moody, that was atmospheric, that kind of let the environment suffocate you a little bit. You know, let the culture shock suffocate you. I don't actually mind the shots of all this new technology against this film because that fits the contrast that they're going for. But, you know, let me have some time in that. Let me relish a little bit in sort of the chaos of what it's like to, you know, change something for the better, but also have your agenda go against somebody else's tradition or their way of life. And there's definitely elements of that tradition that do not fit anymore. You know, movie has Confederate flags in it. And they know to be talking about, you know, just because it's your way of life doesn't mean that's the way it's got to go. But at the same time, there's just, it's not as easy. And I wish the not as easy portion were handled with a little bit more grace to you know, justify all that. 
Uh, these characters, I mean, they're slasher kids. They make dumb decisions and they have dumb bits of dialogue. And I mean, that's kind of the par for the course right now. I don't think it's particularly more or less egregious than it is in any other movie. And frankly, uh, I like the way Melody hides from Leatherface. I think she's pretty smart about handling herself. Uh, there are some hits, though, where I'm sitting there like, yo, you are like five foot nothing, and you just took a hit that should probably knock your ass the fuck out, but it doesn't. So whatever, I'm going to accept it to movie logic. Um, I also wish we had a little bit more Leatherface. There's a... One of my favorite scene in the movie comes where Leatherface is kind of on their own. And they're playing around with makeup, just kind of like they've been in the other movies. And it's this feeling where, you know, now he's got to put on the persona to kind of... um, He's got to put on a persona to, you know, fill a void. And then he sees the party bus full of all these people that are coming to, you know, buy buildings and the auctions come in. And you can see on the flip of a dime that he has to stop putting on that persona that he wants to have and then immediately go into defender mode. It's this sort of schizophrenic jump. But I wouldn't even say it's schizophrenic. It's sort of like mandated by necessity You know, it's like if you're playing Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask and you gotta fucking swim underwater, you gotta put on the Zora fish mask so you can breathe underwater. You know, you gotta flip on it. You gotta hit the start button and change your mask and then go from there, you know? Watch the animation of you turning into a fish monster and then boom, go. And that's kind of what Leatherface is going through. And that persona switching, that idea of... You know, you needing to change who you are in order to fit a proper dynamic. I mean, this is a Leatherface that has likely lost all his family from the first film. So his grandpa's gone, and, you know, brother's gone. It's just, all of these people are gone, and I think he's trying to keep that dynamic together. You know, he's trying to be the caretaker. He's trying to be the leader. He's trying to be the defender of, you know, his family's legacy or their, you know, their property. And again, I wish the movie kind of relished in that a little bit. You know, don't... What is... What's strange to me is that I understand why we can't have Michael Myers, like, in full-blown, like, this is what Michael Myers looks like from the front, whatever. Because, again, it's the battle between someone being human and someone being so taken by evil that they are something otherworldly. They are the boogeyman. But with Leatherface, I kind of want to see what that's like. What is it like to be Leatherface just walking around? You know, and again, you don't... I think the problem that I have with this movie is that, ironically, it's so beholden to what people expect of Leatherface that it could have been something else it could have been again a slower more I hate to say this meditative piece (laughs) something that's looking at its characters and forcing them to change because the world is changing around them so I kind of want to see Leatherface embody these different personas switch the masks 
and you know you don't really need to have Leatherface say anything but I think Leatherface is more of a character than Michael Myers you know like more like a straightforward like you can have in a weird way you can have an arc with Leatherface that you can't with Michael Myers and you really can't with Freddy Krueger because Freddy Krueger is a static character of just pure dick hole evil like sure he's got a background and sure he's got a personality that he's an asshole but I feel like you can do stuff with Leatherface because Leatherface is just mentally ill and he's got his own quirks and got his own desires that you could really explore to have like a silent segment of the movie where you're just following Leatherface living their life I'd be fascinated by that but the movie's just interested in racking up body counts and you know giving you awesome kick-ass makeup effects you know there's some fucked up shit that happens to people's uh, one guy's face that is a really cool effect I really love that and yeah the movie goes along and you kind of you know, it goes the way you expect if you know what a legacy sequel does you know how this goes and then the ending hits and I feel like I, for some strange part of me the ending I was like okay this is gonna work I like where we're at based on where we're bringing characters and arcs and we're kind of completing some things, you know, I think it's less about trying to, I guess, pick a political side with the way the ending goes down and rather just seeing people as people and addressing kind of like their specific emotional change and how, you know, the instruments used in that change are really just tools to be used by somebody that, you know, is, they're they're just tools. I'm trying to dance around this as much as possible. I'm so sorry. But, uh, then the very last, like, two minutes happens, and it just undercuts the film to harken back to the first movie. First off, I just spent an hour and 20 minutes watching your movie. Why are you suddenly reminding me of another film? You know, a film that I've got on Blu-ray. I can look up the ending on YouTube right now, but you're hearkening back to something just to make a visual callback without the emotional and atmospheric context that makes that capper of an ending two pair of shots perfect. And instead just undercutting all the emotional work you just did and not to say that you did a you know not to say that you did an a plus thesis but shit it was a passable grade fuck i'd give you a c up to that point but at that point when that ending hit it just felt so unnecessary and the effect that accompanied that just wasn't great either and it just felt cheap it was a cheap ending And I can't help but think that maybe this was mandated. This was uh, dictated by somebody to just get, you know, oh, we need to fit this quota. We need to remind people it's a horror movie. Let's just go. Let's just go and put it in the movie and then we're done. And then we'll cut to credits and rock music and da-da-da-da. It's just... This feels reminiscent of the worst kind of horror movie, that ending, and I just was not a fan. This is a movie that I think has promise, and I think 
you know, you give this to the right screenwriter, this could kind of be the Western. You know, I kind of want this to be a Western. Like a really slow burn, disturbed, character-focused Western where the kills really hurt. I want, you know, if you're going to kill somebody in this movie, I figure it's got to be something that really bites and tears at you, you know? And this movie just doesn't. It's a quick and sort of uh, painless slasher. And I don't know, Hooper's movie isn't like that. You know, the opening film is just this hazy dream, this hazy nightmare of what it's like to lose bodily function and be reduced to flesh, just flesh. And sort of like this uh, pseudo Descartes, this like proto Descartes approach to what it's like to be human. And shit, I just. There's stuff that you can do with this environment that would make this movie uh, more appealing and more interesting and just give me something more to chew on. But here, I guess, to finish off with a meat metaphor, there's just way, 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 way too much marbled fat. Like, shit, you could have even rendered the fat. You could have made the kills fucking, like, unstoppably good. Could have fucking hired Tony Gardner. Shit, do that. But nah, you gotta go this. Shit, you could have brought in McConaughey again. Fuck. Or Viggo Mortensen? Shit. Viggo Mortensen was great in the third one. Anyway, that's it for me. Uh, Thank you so much for listening again. I've been Daniel Berrios. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at the movies underscore pod. I've got best picture nominees to run through. I've got the Batman. I've got Turning Red. I've got Fresh. And uh, what else did I want to check out? The Atom Project. I've heard really good things about that one. And it also gives me that Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, 13 going on 30 uh, reunion that I've always wanted. So yeah, until next time, take care. And again, thank you for listening. Get back on the app and hit pause.